Amen. Let's pray. I said that too early. I apologize. The problem is I have too many accessories. We're all good. All right, let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, this morning for the privilege of getting to come into your presence. Uh, Father, I I hope and pray um, that I, that that none of us here uh, would take that for granted. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your presence. We thank you for your goodness to us and the many ways in which we get to experience that. And God, right now, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would use it to work on our hearts. Um, Lord, help us to taste and see your goodness as we engage with it this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, happy Sunday after Thanksgiving, everyone. Um, I hope that you all had a wonderful time with friends and family. I hope that you ate to your heart's content because scales are 2024's problem. I don't know about you, but, but uh, I think Thanksgiving is one of my favorite like, non-church holidays, in large part because it centers around a meal. Right? It's people that you love gathered around a table feasting. And that's, that's, that's such a blessing. And, it, and ultimately, it's a foretaste of what we get to experience in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how how your family handles Thanksgiving or what your traditions are or how excited you get about the meal, Uh, but in our family, discussion of the Thanksgiving feast begins weeks before we actually consume it. Uh, We we talk, we we envision, we dream about just about every element of the meal. Um, I asked Oliver, my my five-year-old son, to to rank his favorite uh, Thanksgiving foods, and he kept saying one, and then we go, no, 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 it's actually this. No, 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 it's actually this. No, We got through like 10 different items, and none of them, he, he couldn't claim that any of them were his favorites because he was just so excited about all of them. But we talk about all of these things with, with eager anticipation. We are excited about them. We salivate over descriptions of turkey and stuffing, especially my mother-in-law's stuffing. It's fantastic. But imagine having those conversations without ever having experienced a Thanksgiving feast. What would descriptions of turkey, like what would that do to you if you've never tasted turkey? How much would you engage with someone if they begin to to describe how their aunt makes mashed potatoes with butter and garlic and Parmesan? It's so delicious. How much would you be willing to engage with that conversation if you had never tasted and seen the goodness of that type of food? I mean, maybe if you're just interested in food in general, you might think about flavors and and combinations, but my guess is that you wouldn't stay and, and pay attention for any length of time. It wouldn't hold your interest. No, the thing that's exciting about a feast isn't just describing it, isn't just talking about it, it is tasting it, it is seeing it, it's experiencing it. Well, friends, one of the amazing things that we see in our text this morning is an invitation from God not just to theorize about aspects of his character or personhood, not just to sit and contemplate who he is, 
Those are good things to do. But the invitation that we see in this text goes farther. Now, we are invited here to taste and see the goodness of God. That's what we read in verse 8. So this morning, we are going to walk through this text, and we'll start by looking at what gets in the way of our experience of God's goodness, and then we'll look at how we can apprehend it, truly taste and see it. So I want us to, to jump in now, and we'll begin by talking about what keeps us from tasting and seeing the goodness of God. And while there are many things that one can say about that, I think one of the things that our text points to is this, the wrong kind of fear. In verses 1 through 3, we have a beautiful word of praise. I'm going to read that for us now. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. Beautiful words of praise. But what is it that inspired them? Well, in the verses that follow, we read, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. So this is a psalm written by David praising God for a great rescue that God has accomplished on David's behalf. And the heading of this psalm provides some helpful context. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at the very beginning, and there you'll read, concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and he departed. It's a fun little snippet. Well, the the heading of the psalm places the context of its writing in 1 Samuel 21. So let's take a minute and set the scene. When we first encounter David, he is just a shepherd. He's the youngest of eight of uh, youngest of eight sons of a man named Jesse. And in 1 Samuel 16, God sends Samuel, who is a prophet, to Jesse's house because he tells Samuel because he tells Samuel that he has chosen someone from Jesse's house, one of Jesse's sons, to be the king of Israel. So Samuel obeys, and and he works his way down the list of Jesse's sons until he finally gets to David, the youngest and the smallest. And God tells Samuel, this, this is the one, this is the man that I have chosen. So Samuel anoints David as king. It's cool, right? Right? There's one problem. Israel already had a king, a man named Saul, and he wasn't really excited about the idea of giving up his power and his position. Well, in the verses that follow David's anointing, David is thrust into Saul's presence, first as a musician, as one who can play the lyre and and calm Saul down. Calm Saul. Calm Saul down. That's that's the right. Those are the right words. So first, as a talented musician, David is is put into Saul's presence, but then, ultimately, and most famously, as a mighty warrior. David is the only one who is brave enough and competent enough to stand before Goliath and defeat him. Well, David ultimately kills Goliath, and, and after doing that, he immediately becomes a target of Saul's, because David begins receiving more and greater praise than Saul. So Saul makes it his mission to destroy David. 
So in 1 Samuel 21, which is the setting for this text, David is on the run from Saul. And you know that the situation is dire because of where David fled. David fled to a place called Gath. Gath was one of five major Philistine cities, the Philistines being the major enemies of Israel at the time. But not only does he run into enemy territory, not not only does he run into the, the region of the Philistines, of the five cities that composed the major Philistine territories, he ran to Gath. He could have gone to Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, or Ekron, but no, 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 he went to Gath. And why does that matter? Well, guess who was born in Gath? This big guy, he's kind of mean, a guy by the name of Goliath, the man that David killed. That shows the desperation that David had. David is there ultimately to hide out, but as the the giant slayer, he pretty quickly attracted attention. It doesn't take long for him to be noticed. And the servants of the king of Gath tell the king, the man who has come here for refuge, this David, is the man about whom our enemies sing. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, likely implying we probably shouldn't let this guy stay alive for very long. So David, reading the situation in, verse, in 1 Samuel uh, 21, verses 12 and 13, took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Now, just a a quick word about uh, this text and our heading. Um, Our psalm refers to the Philistine king as Abimelech, and this text we see that the king is called Achish. Um, It is the same person, and neither account is wrong. Achish, as we see here, was the king's personal name, where Abimelech was the general name given to uh, Philistine kings. The the name in Hebrew means, my father is king, so just in case you're, you're, you're troubled by seeing the two names. It's the same person. All right. Anyway, so David, in order to avoid being killed by the Philistines, he feigns insanity, and it works. The king sees David and responds to his servants by saying, look, you can see this man is crazy. Achish said to his servants, why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? So it's an interesting story, is it not? Now we, 3,000 years removed, look at this account and think like, wow, that was, that was clever, it's unique, it's interesting. And we see David you know, managing to get out of a life-threatening situation by acting a little crazy. It may not be ideal, we may not choose to do something like this or desire to do something like this, but it doesn't strike us as this like, earth-shattering, how could anyone do such a thing? It doesn't hit us as being a particularly big deal. Even if you're not the type of person that likes to put yourself out there and do embarrassing things, you may be able to move past this story relatively quickly. Uh, I am one of those people, uh, a little-known fact about me, when I was in elementary school, I was put in acting classes uh, against my will. It it was a situation where my mom was out walking with me and a a talent scout uh, approached her and said, your son, he's so handsome. She was clearly on something. Um, Have you ever considered having him act? And my mom said, well, maybe I should. And 
completely beyond my say or control, I ended up uh, going to downtown LA every single week to go to these acting classes um, until they came to a screeching halt when I was instructed to act like a monkey on camera. And at eight, I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do that. So all that to say, I identify with people who do not like to put themselves out there in such a way. But even for me, like reading this account, it doesn't really hit me as being anything particularly huge. But David, again, 3,000 years ago, as the anointed king in an ancient Near Eastern honor-shame culture, acting in this way would have been unthinkable. Acting in this way would have been a huge deal. It would have had the potential to ruin him and his reputation, even if it saved his life in the moment. So with all of this in mind, let's read once again, verses four through six. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Now think, what specifically is God being praised for? Deliverance, yes. But deliverance from what? Saul? The Philistines? I'm sure he's grateful to have been delivered from both, but that's not what's mentioned here. Instead, David praises God for delivering him from all of his fears. From a place of desperation, David, a poor man in this circumstance, calls out to God and is saved from his troubles. Troubles, a word also, you could also translate the word that's translated troubles here as, uh, as distress or anguish. And I think it's instructive here that David appears to recognize right, that his biggest problems aren't his circumstances. His biggest problems aren't his enemies. His biggest problems are his fears. Again, he doesn't praise God for the fact that he was delivered from his enemies or that his life was spared, although I am sure he is thankful for both of those things. No one said he thanks God for what one Old Testament scholar calls a change of attitude, not merely of circumstances. God has given David, in addition to deliverance, a new outlook that will enable him to have joy and peace despite his circumstances. God has given David the gift of perspective. And this is evident in verse five. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. David writes this immediately after he has literally just brought shame to his face letting spittle run down his beard. Something that just wasn't done. But David has been delivered from his fears, from his troubles, from his anguish. He's been given a hope that despite his circumstances, despite the current feelings of shame he may be enduring, that he will not be put to shame in an ultimate sense. Why? Because he is known by God. He is seen. He's been heard. And that, that is enough. 
He's putting into practice Paul's words that we looked at not too long ago in Philippians 4. David makes his requests known to God and as a result has been given the peace of God which surpasses understanding. So consider for a moment what fears would you like to be delivered from? What keeps you up at night? What things are you afraid of? Afraid that will put you to shame? Are they fears at work? The idea that you've got a a reputation to uphold, that you want to be seen in a certain light as having significance, as as being a decision maker? Are you afraid of, of making the wrong move and then being proven obsolete? Are your fears surrounding family? Are you nervous about how your kids are going to end up? The friends that they're going to make? The people that they're going to marry? Or maybe you're estranged from family members. Maybe you're estranged from your parents, nervous that they'll never really see you. Whatever your source of fear may be, true, lasting hope and peace won't come from the right circumstances. Instead, they come from the God who stands beyond them who is able to deliver us from our fears and save us from our troubles. He is the one who promises to go before us, to be with us, who won't leave us or abandon us. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid or discouraged. The wrong kind of fear keeps us from hearing this assurance, from trusting in God and from tasting his goodness. So what is it that we need instead? We need the right kind of fear. In verse 7, we read, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. If you're thinking, oh, wait a second, I thought we were supposed to get rid of our fears, but now we're being told that we need to fear in order for the angel of the Lord to encamp around us? Like, what's, what's that all about? Well, in the Bible, there is a wrong and a right type of fear. And the two are depicted here in this text with two different Hebrew words. The fear described in verse 4 is depicted by the Hebrew word megora. It's, it's terror or dread, and it's a fear that's rooted in circumstances. Right? What if this goes wrong? What if I lose everything? What if I don't make it? This is what God is able to deliver us from. Well, the second type of fear, the right kind of fear, seen here in verse 7, is depicted by the word yare. This is a reverence and an awe before God. And it shares the same root as the word yura, also typically translated fear and and described in verse 9, excuse me, in Proverbs 9, as the beginning of wisdom. Now again, this isn't terror or dread. Instead, this is awe. Now, awe isn't something that we talk a great deal about in our culture. I was reading something recently in which a writer was bemoaning our misuse of the word awesome. Uh, He complained, I find it hard to think of a word that is more unmoored from its root as awesome. The word awesome literally means extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. And we use this word to describe a sandwich, among other things. 
Although I must say the post Thanksgiving sandwich with the turkey and the stuffing and it's just, it's, it is pretty awesome. But I think our misuse of the word awesome just goes to show how little we think of or truly experience a sense of awe. Interestingly, however, I just got a book by a psychology professor at Berkeley uh, by the name of Dacher Keltner entitled Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And in this book he writes, I've taught happiness to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Now 20 years into teaching happiness, I have an answer. Find awe. While awe isn't something that most people intentionally think about in our culture on a regular basis, it is something that we all crave. I read an article recently in The New Yorker about Monster Jam, and I said that, that you heard that correctly. An article in The New Yorker about Monster Jam, and typically you don't see articles about Monster Jam in such publications, so I was very interested, and, and I read it, and I'm glad I did. Uh, if you don't know what Monster Jam is, it's, uh, it's an organization that puts on monster truck rallies, uh, which the article explains these days are less like demolition derby, crash, demolition derby crash fest than aerial acrobatic shows involving 12,000 pound vehicles. Uh, they put on events in uh, about 130 stadiums and arenas annually on six continents. And, and to put on an event, it requires building um, 130 different elaborate temporary tracks with massive jumps and ramps constructed out of dirt. This is a labor-intensive and expensive endeavor. And the question is, why do it? Why go through the effort to build these temporary tracks for massive vehicles just to destroy? Why do people shell out millions of dollars each year around the world to go watch these massive trucks fly through the air. Well, it's cool, but more than that, uh, in the article, a promoter who has been in the industry for five decades explains, people want to witness forces so vast and strange that they awe or even terrify. The shows can be a forum for contemplating oblivion. So think about that the next time you drive by Angel Stadium and you see that Monster Jam is happening. It's a stadium full of people contemplating oblivion. Um, Maybe not. But you are passing by a stadium full of people who consciously or not are seeking and perhaps experiencing awe. Awe is something that we all need. It's the foundation of wisdom and it characterizes the right approach to God but it can be hard to find, and it can certainly be hard to maintain. Uh, In the article I was mentioning, the journalist spent some time with a crew that had been working on a particular jump for an extended period of time, and there had been lots of trial and error. But one day in a live show, uh, this Trump, I think, I can't remember the name of it, it had like Saurus in it. Um, It was a pun on like roaring and Saurus, it was a good time. But after months of trial and error and lots of near-fatal crashes, in a live show, they actually made this jump. I I believe that um, this one truck jumped over nine other monster trucks. And monster trucks, just for reference, are like 10 and a half feet tall and 12 and a half feet wide. Um, It's amazing. The thing that makes a monster truck a monster truck, I'm learning so many things. Um, 
is the tires, which are 66 inches, which apparently is the average size, or the, the size of the average American. So tires the size of, of people, incredible. So this truck jumped over nine of those. It's amazing, it's quite a feat. But the writer comments, I couldn't help but feel a little underwhelmed. <laughs> Just don't, hopefully he didn't say that to the driver immediately after that happened. Said, I'd seen a version of this a few times now, a big truck flying high and far. How quickly we desire more. Awe is a hard thing to maintain. Friends, we need awe, but it is properly only found in God himself. But thankfully, the invitation of our text isn't simply to sit around and contemplate truths about God. It's not to conjure up feelings of awe as best we can. No, instead, the invitation is to taste and see. So let's read verse 8 together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. About this verse, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, Make a trial, an inward experimental trial of the goodness of God. You cannot see except by tasting for yourself. But if you taste, you shall see. For this, like Jonathan's honey, enlightens the eyes. Now when Spurgeon says Jonathan's honey, he's referring to a story about Jonathan, who's the the son of King Saul and ironically also the best friend and companion of, of King David. And in 1 Samuel 14, the people of Israel were in battle against the Philistines and the Israelites were famished. Jonathan was a, a warrior among them and on, on his journey, he, he noticed that there was a flow of honey and he reached out his staff and he dipped it into the honey and he tasted the honey. And as soon as he did so, we are told that his eyes became bright. And this is a euphemism for his strength, his energy being restored. Now the other Israelites saw the honey that Jonathan, uh, that Jonathan also saw, but they didn't take any because Saul had given orders that no one was allowed to eat until his enemies had been defeated. Jonathan hadn't heard the order, and when someone saw how Jonathan disobeyed, they told Jonathan, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Here's a situation in which everyone knows that there is this thing that will revive. It will give energy, it will renew, but only one person has tasted and seen. Only one person has experienced it. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, says, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. There's a wide difference between mere speculative, rational judging anything to be excellent and having a sense of its sweetness and beauty. See, we need rational judgments. We need knowledge. We need to know that God is good, right? that he watches out for us, that, that we will not be ashamed in the end. 
But more than that, we need to taste and see God's goodness. But how? Well, Spurgeon, once again, faith is the soul's taste. They who test the Lord by their confidence always find him good, and they become themselves blessed. We can truly only experience the goodness of God. We can only really see, have our eyes become bright. We can only taste if we have faith, if we trust, if we allow ourselves to go there. Now, interestingly, in his book about awe, uh, Keltner says one of the primary ways that we find awe is an observing moral beauty. And our passage points to the greatest source of moral beauty the world has ever seen. We're told in verse 7 of Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure throughout the Hebrew Bible and one who is closely identified with and able to speak for God himself and yet is distinct from him. And this reality has led many scholars to believe that references to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament are actually visions of Jesus before he became incarnate, before he took on our humanity. And the promise here that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Friends, that promise comes to fruition in Jesus, who we're told in John 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word translated dwelt literally means encamps, set up a tent. And why did Jesus do that? So that we could taste and see the extent of his goodness. So we could taste and see the beauty of his grace as he laid down his life for us. So the question for us today is, will we taste and see? Will we have faith, which is the soul's taste? If you're here today and you're contemplating the faith, that the call of this text is to take the next step, to reach out your staff like Jonathan did and, and dip it in the honey. Allow faith to open your eyes. And if you're feeling like you can't, like there's some block, give that over to God for faith itself is a gift. As Paul tells us in, in Ephesians 2, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not from works so that no one can boast. Sometimes all we can pray is, I do believe, help my unbelief. And that is a prayer that God answers. And if you're sitting there thinking, I have believed this stuff my whole life, well then ask yourself, where am I not trusting God? Where are my fears speaking louder than God's assurances? What other sources have captured my heart, my trust, my affections? Friends, may we all today taste and see the goodness of God. May he brighten our eyes through faith and change us as a result.
Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we pray this morning that you would help us to apply this text. Lord, help us. Give us the strength. Give us the wisdom. Give us the ability by your spirit to taste and see your goodness. Father, brighten our eyes through the gift of faith. Father, when it is lacking, we we pray that you would supply it. Lord, where we are seeking other things, thinking that that will provide the sense of awe and fulfillment that we need, Lord, forgive us. And please keep bringing us back to you. Again, God, we pray, give us faith. Deliver us from our fears and help us to trust in you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.